people of God received the heart transplant and we walked out the heart of flesh that God has given us. See, I realize I said that, what if it would happen with you all knowing that it's already happened in Christ. Isn't that the new covenant? That God takes out our hard hearts, it gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart that's soft again. Hard hearts allow hatred to rule. These hearts also refuse to show mercy to those in need and find fault wherever they go. Pastor Daniel today reminds us that we don't have to live with hard hearts anymore. Thanks to Jesus, we can live in the freedom of love and grace. Our hearts can become soft and filled with compassion for the people around us, our families, friends, and even strangers. Jesus wants to set us free to share his love. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with his continuing study, The Big Ten. The family is God's ordained primary unit of discipleship for people. The family unit, a husband, a male, and a wife, a female, and the fruit of that union, children, is God's primary way of society. Now, you realize we live in a day and age where that is kind of, people don't believe that anymore, but the people who don't believe it in the society we live in, look at what we have going on in our society. Is 21st century Western culture healthy on any level? No. So the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. You know, and I'm not knocking, I'm just saying, people can believe whatever they want about family, but look at what's going on in the world that we live in today. And the disintegration of a family and the full-on onslaught to family that we're seeing, it's having its repercussions all through society. Now, notice, it's children honoring your parents. Now, how many have ever seen the TV show Nanny 911? Right? You know why that show is in there? Why people do? Because people don't read the Bible. See... Parents are not meant to be your kids' friends. You're meant to be their parents. And kids should learn how to honor their parents because if children cannot honor their parents whom they can see, how will they ever learn to honor God who they cannot? Now, I say this and I realize, you know what the problem is with children honoring your parents? Is when you have a set of parents who don't honor the Lord and you're lousy parents. And when a parent doesn't take care of their job, then the children say, why would I want to do that? And if God wants me to honor those people, they are loco, right? And when that happens, then everything starts to break down. Now, here's the thing. If you're a parent, are you a godly parent? Are you a parent who reflects the heart of God to your children? Are you patient and kind, not self-seeking? You know, all, Just read 1 Corinthians 13 and apply it to your parenting. Nasty, right? You want to go to parenting class, take 1 Corinthians 13 and then take the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and say, is this the way that I parent? And know what every parent's going to say? 
I got work to do. And Jesus said, amen, let's work on it together, right? So the idea here is that parents are meant to be the stand-in, the physical hands and heart of God in the life of their children. Now, the thing is, is except for Jesus, every one of us, I mean, except for if Jesus was your parent, every one of us has been raised by dysfunctional parents. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. There's only a perfect savior and imperfect people. Now, so as a parent, you and I need to do our best to be good representations of Jesus in the lives of our children. Now, you might be saying, so, okay, so Fusco, you're freaking me out because I did a lousy job, right? Know what you should do? You should go to your children and apologize. Because guess what? They already know that you've messed up. They're living proof of your messing up, right? They get that. But when you come to them as a godly parent and say, you know what? I'm so sorry. I lost my temper. I haven't been a great example. You know, sometimes I get frustrated. I get angry, all this stuff. And you say, you know, will you pray for me? God's working on me. That's a very healthy thing for a parent to do. My kids are so used to me saying that that they, I don't even have to finish the sentence. Something will go on and I'll be like, Obadiah, I'm so sorry, buddy. I got impatient with you. He's like, I know, dad. God's still working on you. <laughs> and then I say, I say, in Obadiah's time, I'm like, Obadiah, will you pray for me? And he puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Lord, will you bless my dad? And you're working on him. And I'm grateful you are, <laughs> you know? And just keep working on him, Lord. And he, if you want, Lord, let him give me my Minecraft game back. You know, he like slips in a little. But I realized that as a father and Lynn, as a mother of our children, that when they think of who God is, they're going to think of how we showed them who God was and who we are. And so we have a responsibility as parents not to just expect blind obedience, but to honor the Lord. But then as children of parents, then we should honor our parents. Now, I always say that when you, depending on where you are as a child, depends on how you honor your parents. So here's the thing. If you live in your parents' house and they pay your bills then there's one way that you honor your parents because you live in their house and they pay your bills, right? Now, if you're one of those people who are like 40 and living in your parents' house and they're paying your bills, you need to move out, okay? Because that's just sad. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just being honest. Like, you're supposed to pay your own bills. That's part of life. And I realize sometimes there's circumstances and things that go on, but like, if you're in your parents' house, you need to leave your parents' house very quickly, you need to take care of that because that's part of growing up. But if you're, like, I had someone come to me and say, look, I'm 30 and I'm living in my parents' house. Should I honor them? I'm an adult. I'm like, well, you're not an adult if you're not paying your own bills. You're just a big grown-up kid. So pay your own bills and then you can ask for your rights. But it's like, people get upset. I'm 30 years old. My parents gave me a curfew. I'm like, well, if they're paying your bills, they're allowed to, they want to go to sleep. You need a curfew because you're acting like a child. And so if you are an adult who's living in your parents' house, grow up and move out. They'll be happy you did, trust me. Right? And so as long as you're living in your parents' house, you're under their roof, you have to abide by their rules. Even if you don't agree with it, you have to abide by their rules because you're living in their house and they're paying the bills and you honor them that way. Now, at the point when you move out of your parents' house, the point when you move out of your parents' house, then you still honor your parents, but in a different way. Because they're still your parents. And whether or not you agreed with all of it, they did pay the bills for a good long time, and that should be championed. I mean, wouldn't you like them to keep paying your bills right now? Yeah, most adults would be like, yeah, I'd love it if I had all my bills paid by my parents, though, and all your meals cooked and all your laundry done. Like, it sounds like a cushy gig. So you spend the rest of your life 
honoring them, but honoring them as your parents for all that they've done for you and, and God's given place that you've given them, that he's given them in your life, but also you honor them by living your own way. So like one of the things that I learned, I remember when I graduated college and I moved out of my father's house because my mother had passed away and God started to teach me because I came to know Jesus what it was like to honor my father. So one of the things that I, God convicted me of is that I shouldn't argue with my father because he was my dad. And I'm all Italian, he's all Italian, so arguing is kind of like a love language. And so, and I realized it was unhealthy, and so I just made a commitment, I wasn't going to argue with my father anymore. So I stopped arguing with him, you know, and sometimes it was really hard, and I had, we'd talk on the phone, and I'd have to pull the phone away and grit my teeth, and, you know, and jam pens into the desk and all sorts of stuff so I didn't fight with them because God's working on me and I'm not perfect but then at the same time as I've gotten older what I've learned is that one of the ways that I honor my father is to invite him into my life as an advisor but also tell him dad thank you so much for your insight and your ideas but I'm going to do something different and what's been really amazing now as a a 40 year old man and as a parent and a husband my dad always says to me he's like he's like you you always ask my advice and you almost never do what I tell you to do you know, and I'm like, well, dad, I really appreciate your approach. You're my dad and you've did an extraordinary job of taking care of us. And, you know, we're still close. And so I want to know what your insight is. I'm like, but dad, I have to honor God and I have to honor the life that God has placed in front of me. But my dad always says to me, he says, you know, but Daniel, thanks for asking. And so you find these ways to honor them as your parents, but you're your own adult. A man shall leave his father and mother and, and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one for us. So you start a new family, but even in your new family, you still seek to honor your families of origin. And so this idea of honoring your father and mother, it says in here, and the Apostle Paul calls this the first commandment with promise, because notice what it says. It says, that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So when a family is strong, it will bring health to society. And one of the greatest tragedies that we have in our contemporary culture is not only within a nuclear family, but within an extended family, there's so much fracturing, right? And it's creating a society that has divisions and fractures, And I think for those of us who are here, which I believe are many of you, or who are listening to this online or on the radio or on television or wherever you're hearing this, Jesus did exhort us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so as much as is within us, we should seek to be peacemakers within our family. You say, Fusco, you can say that. You don't know my family. Listen, Jesus died on a cross to make peace for us. And then he invites each one of us to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and follow him. And I think for many of us, I realize that the wounds of family are the most sensitive wounds. I realize that. But God wants us to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow him. And as much as we can, seek to be peacemakers within our family. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean you have to take all the blame for everything, but you can say, listen, I'm so sorry for my part of why our family is fractured. As I was going back over these notes today, it was just really on my heart that I needed to share that. I think for some of you, you need to, even right now, pull out your phones and text the family member and say, I'm so sorry for my part in our relational struggles. Because Jesus 
made peace with us proactively. We weren't willing parties in the beginning. He proactively made peace. And because the family is God's primary discipling unit, God's primary building block of a healthy society, then as followers of the true and living God, we need to make a commitment to that. Now, I realize for many of you, you there's brokenness, broken marriages, broken families, and you can't go back and redo yesterday. For yesterday, we received God's grace. But we go forward in a new and a different way, and we seek to do differently. I realize family is extraordinarily messy. I mean, I come from an all-Italian family. I mean, my family is just like, ooh. It's like a beautiful mess. I mean, how many of you ever saw my big, fat Greek wedding? You ever see that? You just take away the bunt cake and all of the Greek things. You make it Italian. That's my family. Loud and in your face. And it's crazy stuff. Kind of, I always say like smothering kind of love. It's terrifying. Like loud love. Like almost obnoxious love. You know? And it's like, and so I realize family can be really messy. When you have a loud smothering Family, when something goes wrong, it's loud and smothering, wrong, messed up family. You know? So I realize that family is challenging, but God ordained the family. He ordained the family. And just because maybe you came from a busted family doesn't mean that you need to continue the cycle either. See, that's what the gospel does. It says that was your history, but it doesn't have to be your future. But we have to say, Lord, I want you to teach me a more excellent way. Lord, I want you to lead me to live differently, to be different. I realize for some of you, your family is broken, not because of your choices, but because of the choices of maybe a spouse or a child. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to say, Lord, I can't control what someone else says, but Lord, give me an open heart that I may continue to go forward in such a way that reflects your glory, that I wouldn't become hard-hearted or calloused. Because isn't that what happens when a broken family is imposed on us from someone else? It's so easy to get hard-hearted and put up walls, which God wants to tear down. He wants to... Bring those things down by his spirit. So God ordained the family and the health of society is tied up in the health of the family. Now in verse 17, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And the word murder in the Hebrew literally means the idea of with malice aforethought. The idea is really premeditated murder. Okay? And so one of the things that in regards to personal property, each person has the right to life because God loves life. God loves life. And I think for each one of us, the idea of life and cherishing life and working for life is important. And I think it's really interesting because I think we live in a day and age where we're so used to death that we've become cold to how outside of God's plan the taking of life is. I mean, we watch movies and TV shows that are so full of death 
we see these images on the television and on the internet so often of lives being taken and lost that we've become desensitized to the fact that God created all of humanity to live forever. And when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the loss of life was ushered in to the human system, but it's never right. That's why you ever notice when, if somebody passes away, even at an old age, it always leaves you feeling like it's wrong because it is wrong. It wasn't God's plan. And so we need to cherish life. We need to cherish it. Life is fragile. Now, you realize that in Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus gets to the heart of this commandment by saying that if you hate somebody, it's as if you've murdered them in your heart. And I love that about Jesus because Jesus realizes that before murder will happen, hatred is festering and fostered in a human heart. Every time somebody commits murder, it began in their heart long before it began in action. It's a heart issue that plays itself out. And Jesus is challenging with these teachings because we say we should cherish life, but really what the work that you and I have to do is let the Spirit of God do a work of us alleviating hatred in our hearts. Like we have it going on in our society right now with ISIS and now there's this rise in hatred against Muslims, which is just as bad as what they're doing by killing people. Don't get me wrong, there's a difference of severity. I always had much rather you hate me than kill me, you know? Difference in severity. But in God's economy, the reason people are murderous is because they hate first. I was reading about the young man who went on a killing spree in Oregon in Roseburg. And he told people that he wants to be welcomed in hell. He's doing this because he hates people and his life isn't what he wanted. And so he went into the community college there and started shooting people. See, it begins in the heart long before somebody ever picks up some sort of a weapon. Cain killed Abel with a rock. See, the problem isn't the weapon. The problem is the heart that wields the weapon. And I think for each one of us, when we hear you shall not murder and Jesus ties it to hatred, the next question has to be, well, who do I harbor hatred for? And then we hear Jesus saying, listen, you're guilty of murder in your heart by hating them. And that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? Because I can't say everybody, because there's always someone who says, I'm the only one who doesn't, you know? But it's very easy to harbor hatred for people. Someone who's hurt us, somebody who's wronged us. Maybe it's a stereotype of a group of people, whether it's an ethnic group of people or somebody of a certain sexual persuasion or religious persuasion or somebody who votes for the other color on the other side of the aisle. Our world is so full of hatred. It breaks my heart sometimes when I watch. You know, it's like you read comments on news articles and it's so awful the way people talk to each other. You know, people don't agree and they just jump on, like, and some of us do that stuff. It's like, that's a murderous heart. And it's completely antithetical to Jesus giving up his life so that we might share life with other people. See, God wants to change our hearts. 
When I search my heart, there's all sorts of mess in there. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus lived a perfect life. And that's, Jesus died on a cross because my heart's a mess. To forgive me for that and to forgive you for that. And so if you're hearing this and you're saying, man, I do have hatred for this and that. Come, let Jesus do a healing work. See, for all of us, we feel justified in our hatred. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they did. I'm here to tell you, you're right, I don't know. But Jesus does know. And when Jesus died on that cross, he became intimately acquainted with what they did. That if that person would say yes to Jesus, he would wash them white as snow for what they did. So you're right, I don't know. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does know. So we need to ask God to do a healing work in our hearts in regards to murder and hatred. As we close this out, what would it look like if the people of God received a heart transplant and we walked out the heart of flesh that God has given us. See, I realize I said that, what if it would happen with you all knowing that it's already happened in Christ. Isn't that the new covenant? That God takes out our hard hearts and gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart that's soft again. What if instead of hating somebody who has hurt you, what if you begin to think to yourself, I wonder who hurt them that they would do that. And maybe I should pray for their healing. What would it look like in each one of our lives is if instead of hating people, we began to love? Didn't Jesus say we should love our enemies? And we should pray for those people who hurt us. See, Jesus' way is so challenging to us because we want to hate people. We just had someone, they were very upset because it's like, Fusco thinks we should just love terrorists and just going to let them into the country. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we should be naive to what goes on in the world. But if Jesus said, love your enemies, if that makes me an idiot, I can be good with that. I'll be good with being an idiot for lining up with Jesus. But how? You're saying, how do you find love? Well, you pray. And you say, God, your word tells me to love my enemies and I don't know how to. Can you show me how? And you know what God does? He brings you and I to the cross where God loved his enemies, you and I. We were rebels. We were rebelling against God's godhoodness. And he said, I'm going to take the punishment that you deserve because I love you. See, the gospel makes no sense. Except when you realize that God's way of making no sense makes total sense. Jesus is real. Hate is sadly a common word and feeling in society today. Hate leads to violence and destruction, and yet it's preventable. Pastor Daniel asked us to address the things in our lives that allow hatred to take root and to ask God to remove them from us. Hey, Jesus is Real Radio listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Pastor Daniel here. 
As we come into the holiday season, I realize Jesus said we're more blessed to give than receive. As I get older, I love to bless people with these gifts. And I want to encourage you to bless your loved ones and family members with my brand new book, Upward, Inward, and Outward, as I unpack Jesus' greatest commandment, what I call a God-breathed system for living. It makes an amazing stocking stuffer so that people can experience Jesus more and more every day. Here's Josh with more information. Thanks, Pastor Daniel. There are many gifts that we can give this Christmas season, which will bless those that receive them. But why not consider giving a gift that has a spiritual impact? With your gift of $25 or more, you can receive a copy of Pastor Daniel's newest book, Upward, Inward, Outward. And we believe this will make a wonderful gift that will have that spiritual impact in the lives of your loved ones. Please visit JesusIsRealRadio.com to secure your copy today. Join us again here on Jesus Is Real Radio when Pastor Daniel shares how each of the commandments points to our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others. With those things in mind, he'll then bring us to the commandment concerning sexual purity. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series entitled, Refresh. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.